Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics, a podcast where two friends and lifelong film fans sit down and talk about movies that they've never previously discussed. Uh, so this week, we're going to look at Sidney Lumet's 1981 film, Prince of the City. This is a, kind of an oddball one for us because it's not one that I've seen before. Dan, I don't think that you've seen it before, had, but it was your suggestion. Yeah, thanks. I had not seen it, but I had read the book for the first time um, over, you know, over break, like in December or January, and I was really, really taken with it. It's the kind of book I had like laying around the house forever. I just picked up at a yard sale or something for a quarter, and I, for, for whatever reason, I started reading it. I thought it was really, really compelling, and the movie is also something I also planned on seeing, but now since we have, uh, as the Twilight Zone says, Mike, all the time in the world, <laughs> um, uh, or finally time enough, um, uh, we can watch these really, really super long movies. And so uh, Mike and I both watched the movie uh, for the first time about a week ago, and now we're going to discuss it. So my overall take on it was, first of all, I loved it. I thought it was like if George V. Higgins, you know, the author of The Friends of Eddie Coyle and those great mm-hmm. crime movies, if George V. Higgins and David Mamet had a baby <laughs> and the baby was raised by the guys that made The Shield, like that, that was this movie. I thought it, w- it was exactly like that. Okay, well, you took the words out of my mouth because the first thing that I thought about was how unbelievably modern uh, this movie seemed to me. Um, shows like The Shield, other, you know, Showtime uh, and HBO shows featuring an anti-hero. Yeah. Um, this seems to predate them. I think a lot of people kind of start the anti-hero clock uh, from the advent of Tony Soprano, but they're totally right. wrong because right. it's, you know, the, um, I think Lumet sees them all coming. Yeah. Um, part of my thing here is, uh, interestingly enough, and the thing that caught my attention before we saw the movie, is that Lumet also directed Serpico starring Al Pacino, which I think is possibly Pacino's second worst movie uh second not worst. counting not counting Scarface okay uh, and just ahead of a uh, scent of a woman okay which um it's amazing because it's the same subject matter same director you're right? exactly right same city but for some reason Lumet's two New Yorks look totally different and so what, uh, so what do you attribute that to why do you think this one's so much better so one thing that we found out together before here is that actually Sidney Lumet wrote the screenplay for Prince of the City and so I think there was much better source material Okay. Um, coming from, as you said, the book and then the the screenplay. So I think that a lot of the visual drama, the epic drama of Prince of the City, existed in Lumet's mind before it hit the before it hit the screen. Uh, otherwise, I I can't account for just how bad the other performances in Serpico are. Okay. Um, you know, Al, Pac- Al Pacino's okay; he's good, but a lot of it is wooden. It feels like it drags on forever. This movie is just uh, Prince of the City is all set pieces, it seems to me. Yeah. And, you know, it's it just every single scene, whatever the pivotal thing that's supposed to be happening, that scene is kind of takes over my brain. If he's sitting down at an Italian restaurant, you know, passing a folder between somebody, I'm in the folder. If you're, you know, if you're in a room with a bunch of other cops, the high drama of that, a, a lot of these just take place in, in quiet rooms, like when his uh, brother shows up to the barbecue, they got to go upstairs. When he confronts the two guys at the Italian restaurant, they got to go in the men's room. It's very cramped, yeah. um, but in the best way. And it yeah, makes absolutely. the movie move, I think. And a note to the viewer, um, we, did not dis- we never discussed these before we record, but one thing that when, the, when he got done watching it, Mike just sends me a text out of nowhere and it just says, there's a lot of manila envelopes in this movie. And I think that that's such a great thing because that's such a thing we learned from 70s movies and TV shows like Beretta is that, you know, you have to pass the money in the middle over. And then someone says, do you want to count it? And what does the other guy say, Mike? Nah, I trust you. <laughs> Every movie. Like, no. <laughs> or maybe they just ruffle through the money with their thumbs. Yeah, it looks like it's all here. It's like that and like tasting heroin with your finger. Um, okay. And also I wanted to add something in our first segment, Mike, is I have a reading from the book of Mike. 
and I want to quote something you said about Lawrence of Arabia. You probably forgot you said this, but I, I, you know, I listen to everything you say. And uh, something you said about Lawrence Arabia, I think, applies to this movie as well, which is they couldn't make it today. No. They, they'd never be able to make this movie today. And I, I thought about why. We have the quote-unquote, the new anti-hero, which as you said, has been around forever, right? But even with things like The Sopranos and The Shield, which I love, I mean, I think The Shield's one of the greatest TV shows ever. Um, a lot of stuff still happens in The Shield. Like the plots get really, really super complicated and there's still a lot of fist fights and a lot of guns get fired. And there's a lot of chases and things like that. And a lot of um, reversals and a lot of uh, season finales with big surprises. This movie doesn't have that. All the action is character driven. It's all dialogue driven. Now you do get that scene, that great scene, the restaurant where he flips the table over and the goes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a couple of those, but still, like that's one of the reasons I don't think it could be made today. And um, you know, the other thing that occurred to me about the about what makes this movie so great is that it's. You said before it's set pieces, right? There's all that, like you said, with his brother. There's um when he gives a speech, like I did three things wrong in my whole career. There's all these great speeches, right? But the other thing that occurred to me is that it's a great movie about acting. You're watching, I, you're watching actors play people acting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the whole point is that like Danny doesn't know when he's acting anymore. When he's not, he says at one point, like, um, I feel like I'm lying even when I'm telling the truth. And he says, it's been so long I had to think about my answers. And I think um, the movie invites you to just to just um, relish the, the performances in it and just take them for what they are. And like, yeah, there's this cop thing going on and we're not going to resolve it. But um, all of the acting is so good. Like you said before, the actors in Serpico aren't as good as Al Pacino. Like how good, are, like, how good is the guy that plays his cousin, the mobster? Um, how about um, Ron Carabazzos as the big fat, uh, the big fat uh, criminal? He's great. He was great. I mean, But my, fa- my favorite, um, you know, and I, I'll get into the scene later, but my, I think even the guy who plays his dad is good. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like a little character, when he, when he opens the door and he's been beaten up on Ronnie and he says, you know what, but he ain't blind and I ain't either. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know. So it's it's this great it's this great three hour totally depressing celebration of acting, and, and, and in a way that like I, I don't think I, I can't imagine anybody getting the money to make this movie today. No, I'm the only person who could produce it is dead, and and that is uh, the unflaggable Jerry Orbach. Uh, <laughs> I I just I just love that guy in in everything he's in. He could really he yeah. played so many cops, but he could really play anything. Um, yeah. And, and how about uh, how about when he's playing he's the, the how about when he's running the dry cleaning business when he's deep undercover with the dry cleaners? How great was that? He's he's unbelievable. All right, I'll see you in segment two. All right. Hi, welcome back to segment two, where we like to talk about our favorite moment or our favorite line or our favorite scene that we think represents the experience of the movie as a whole. Um, so, Mike, you want to go first? What's yours? Yeah, I'm I'm drawn into the barbecue scene early where Ronnie comes over and his brother tells him, you know, we, we got Ronnie upstairs. His brother's the, the drug addict. Yeah. And he starts beating up on him for, for coming around, for making a mess of his life, for still being on drugs. And Ronnie flips the tables on him yeah. and says, look at you guys. Look at you guys. What's the difference between you and a guy who puts a stocking over his face? Nothing, but you got a badge. And I thought that, um, you know, obviously it's it's an overt, portrayal of the of the themes of the film but it's it's devastatingly effective because you know with Danny all up in his face and pushing him around truly he takes over the scene verbally where somebody is uh putting pressure on him physically and I think that that has a lot to do with with what I took away from the film about the about the power of speech and he flips his dad too who's listening on the other side of the door you know he, the, the implication being even if it's your house you wouldn't beat me up while dad you know while dad's here while everybody's downstairs and there's a beautiful moment in the middle of it which is kind of like my scene in, in front of a scene where 
Ronnie sticks his head out the window and all the cops that are downstairs are listening and they're laughing. Yeah. They think it's all funny and they're, they're sitting there exactly like the crowd. And, you know, and we yeah. as an audience see an audience and there's, a, there's, you know, days and days and days of daylight between our reaction to it and their reaction to it. I, that's, yeah. that's the moment that really, that really caught me. And I think it's why Danny so soon after has his, you know, moment of repulsion and he decides to flip. Yeah, because you also, that's, that's a great point, Mike, because you also, um, you know, Danny's relationship to the junkies is that he pities them. Mm -hmm. you know he pities them like why do you go out and get this guy junk at three in the morning and mm -hmm. he even tells he even tells his his uh his u.s attorney handlers at one point he's like you feel bad for them like you have to get them the stuff that's all they have and then he goes out and wails on the guy and then feels bad he beats up the other guy to yeah right so it's kind of funny like his relationship with them is really interesting too um it's funny you just said it's like a physical thing that shows his character because mine was a really slow moment i had a lot of moments in this movie that i loved but mine was when he first starts to realize he's gonna flip and he sits down in the chair and the legs come out from under him and like first of all you never see furniture mishaps in a movie like that that never happens in life you know you might break a chair but that never happens in a movie and it's so it's so surprising when it happens and it occurred to me later thinking about the movie is that's Danny's whole life like I'm on solid footing and all of a sudden boom, the chair gets pulled out from under him right it's about a guy trying to control his 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 um his world but he finds out that he can't and like you know he doesn't get a rug pulled out from under him but the chair breaks underneath him no absolutely so there's one other scene um, like that, that I consider to, to be my scene since we only pick one. But sure. um, I think a lot, I thought a lot about in watching this movie, how different it was from Serpico. I hate to keep harping on that, but uh, you know, I, I thought, well, what if you have Danny played by Al Pacino? And who was offered the job, but didn't, but said it was too was much for Serpico. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, th th so there's one scene where I really feel uh, that the performance shines, which is when he's, he's talking, um, to the to the guys in uh, internal investigations, um, mm -hmm. the guys who are going to be judges later and the yeah. lawyers and everything, and he's he's screaming at them and he's reaming them out and just like you said, he he thinks he has the measure of where he is in the conversation, but he makes himself cry. Yep. It's not some it's not anything yeah. that they say. He makes himself cry. He sits down, and he puts his head in his hands, and he cries in front of them like a, like a child. Not not like was... he tears up. He sobs. Yes. And I thought that was so believable that yes. they just look at each other because they're using him. I mean, they kind of, they kind of feel bad for him too. And they stick up for him at the end. Um, by the way, you know, one of those guys, um, you know, is uh, Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani yeah. was involved in handling this, the real life case. But certainly when he starts sobbing there, that struck me as so emotionally real that, that he wants them to cry. But they're just looking at him, and, and he breaks out. He says, like, "You remember?" He says something like, "Um, you know, you know, Adelman cares more about me than you guys, and I'm sitting in the jail." And they just have totally stone faces there, looking at him. Right? I thought that was that was a really, really great moment. Absolutely. Which also, um, you just reminded me about Edelman that um, there's a that scene where he's talking to the the mobster. He's, he's having coffee with him. Yeah. He calls him a matzo eater. You know, among among other reasons why this movie would not be made is that uh, the, the verbiage in this movie is not, not just inappropriate, but it's just unbelievable, yeah, you know, but yeah. very 70s. Right, very 70s, very, I mean, the movie puts you in the mind of the French Connection, right? Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I thought of Beretta, watching Beretta when I was a kid, like all of that, that whole look, it's, it's so dingy and so dirty and claustrophobic. And I think it's going back to your thing about um, his tears is that one thing the film captures really well that I really liked about the book was that there's no scene, there's no Zen moment, there's no um, road to Damascus moment that makes him want to flip. When I read the book, I kept waiting for the scene that would explain why he flips, and he really doesn't have one. He tries to control everything like, you're, okay, you can't go after my partners, 
and you know they're gonna have to because otherwise there's no drama right? okay just one then yeah, yeah just one, just one right? <laughs> but certainly like didn't you think that was great that you don't get a scene where he's like i can't live with this corruption any longer like he just he just wakes up one day and decides to do it he's he's just a cop you know that's right it's it's what he is and i think that that is what separates him out from from the other guys right which is he can call them a unit as much as he want but i think one of the reason that he's that he's crying in that scene is because he always he knows that he's different than the guys down at the barbecue that are laughing and oh I that's a great point back yeah. to your to your to your moment about pity that uh it's it's an emotional difference he can dress the same as them he can but what i forget his um his apron says something totally ridiculous and I forget what it, <laughs> yeah, that's what what it, what it says now. It's implied that they're hanging out in it, like a nice house in North Jersey. You know, I yeah. took that to be Montclair, but I forget where it, you know, yeah. where it actually is. Uh, well, he says he, over he, and over, he, he says like, he has this like, this, um, you know, he keeps saying, nobody loves you, but your partners. Nobody mm-hmm. loves you, but your partners. It's like, he tells him that all the time to make himself feel better for what he's, tr- for what he's trying to do. But, it, but then he just, he gets in, he, you know, morally he gets in over his head. All right. I'll see you in segment three. Okay. We're going to pause here because we just want to tell you something. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. The first point is it's free. Yeah. Second, they have all the tools that you need to create, record, and edit your podcast right on your phone or your laptop. Third, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. You pick up sponsorships, you can make money from your podcast, and there's no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, welcome back to segment three where we talk about the title or we talk about the last scene. Um, but I, I think Mike's, Mike's waving to say he, he remembered the apron. Without looking it up, I remembered that his apron says home on the range, which is... I, Oh God, that's so beautiful. Yeah, which okay. is perfect. It's per- perfect detail, perfect detail. So let's talk about the ending. So, you know, um, in the, in the uh, book, you find at the end that the real guy, Robert Lucci, went, around, went to have a, he had a writing career. He wrote some novels. He mm-hmm. went around as a speaker. He kind of like got his life back together after he, after he flipped. But I want to read you something, Mike, and we've not mm-hmm. shared this passage before. Um, this is from Janet Maslin when the movie first came out. And I want to get your reaction to this, to the ending, right? So you think about that last scene or the, close to the last scene where all the lawyers are in the room and they're all given the reasons, should we or should we not persecute him, right? And then we get to the final scene at the academy where the guy stands up and says, you know, I have nothing to learn from you. What do you make of this? Here we go. Janet Maslin's review of Prince of a City. Here's a quote. In avoiding the danger of jumping to a facile conclusion about Danny, Mr. Lumet heads so far in the opposite direction that he ends the film on a disappointing, inconclusive note. So much evidence has been presented. So many lawyers have trooped across the screen. So much time has been devoted to the question of Danny's essential honesty that a verdict is in order, if not from a moral standpoint, then from a dramatic one. Quote. What do you make of that? I understand what she's saying, but there's so many other suicides in this movie. There's so many people in this movie that kill themselves that it, it strikes me that the movie is very much about self-disgust and about self-verdict. Yeah. And so I think you're, I think you're meant to understand that Danny has done enough to avoid that fate, right? I, I can't even list the, the number of people in this movie that, um, that off themselves. Yeah, too. Because yeah, but he, there's either, literally either, figurative suicide. Yeah. Right, either because they're caught or just it's, right. it's like the end of the line for them and they realize that it's the end of the line for them. Right. So I feel like Danny's vindication is that it's not the end of the, end of the line for him. Right, 
But I think, I mean, I think she's, I think she's off base because I think the drama is that the, all those lawyers are right. All those lawyers mm-hmm. are right at the end. So the guy Polito, the district attorney, mm-hmm. who, who's there, and he says, um, you know, uh, you know, um, my my grandfather was a lawyer. My father was a lawyer. He says to them, um, you guys have got it all mixed up. He says, you've fallen in love with this perpetrator. You feel responsible for him. You want him to love you, but you are prosecutors sworn to prosecute the guilty. He says, uh, Cello was a law officer, was admitted to over 40 instances of perjury. And he's like, he's like, what are you doing? But at the same time, um, uh, the other guy says, uh, you know, uh, Brooks, the, the Giuliani character says, to me, Danny Cello is a hero. And we're sitting here trying to decide whether to put him in jail or not. And I think that it is kind of like, you know, like you said before about what his brother says to him about the, about the drug dealers versus the cops, right? And about at one point, someone says, um, you know, the only way to put these drug dealers out of business is, is to take their cash. Because that's not, Ralph, a couple that's hours, they buy themselves a judge, they buy themselves a bondsman. So it, it's, again, it's like the shield where you get this morally ambiguous thing. But I think at the end of the movie, they're all correct. Like, that's a hard call what to do with this guy. There, did you uh, think it was not as hard? Did you think it was no, not no, no, hard? no? It is, it is. But um, you you brought up exactly the scene, which is you know when the uh, when the guy is screaming to give me a name, and they give yeah. up the, the guy Raph Alvarez, yeah, uh, who does the whole spiel that that you just said, where he says, um, "I never accept, <laughs> I never, you know, I never blah blah blah, except when there was enough evidence, right?" Um, and 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 took the cash, meaning it the that unit made up its own rules. And so the idea yeah. is that did Danny operate by those rules or not? And, and he does until he can't take it anymore. And then yeah. he comes back on the other side of the law. So I, I think that by, by their standards, or at least to an extent by his standards, he's followed the rules. It's, it's when he even steps outside the rules of the unit. Like when you said, when he beats up the, the guy to take his junk and give it yeah. to the, give it to the other guy um, that he, he realizes that he's crossed some kind of boundary. Yeah, he's trying think, to jive like different sets of rules at once and trying to have, you know, the, the cliche is you're trying to have it both ways, but he can't. And like everybody knows that. Like in the book, one thing you don't really get from the film is you get the one scene where they're in front of the judge and they're making jokes about the woman with the fur coat. But the first maybe 40 or 50 pages of the book is just how successful those guys were. Like they were bringing down like top narcotics people all the time. Now they did that by installing illegal wiretaps in their basements mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, I mentioned the shield a couple of times. Have you ever, did you ever watch the shield? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the shield's great, but you know, the whole premise of the shield is that the strike, what do they call the strike force or the, the strike team? Yeah. The strike team. Yeah. Like they keep all that gang violence at bay in LA and everybody knows it like Acevedo, their boss knows it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what Vic tries to do. And, and they have their retirement fund. So they, well, that's what, they, they want to be the out by the time they're 45. Like, yeah. So when yeah. they rob the money train, you're not sitting there on your couch saying, I'm shocked. That should be, that should be handed over as evidence. You're like, well, let's give it to Vic and Shane. Who cares? They're the ones that got shot at. But in this, it's much more, uh, you know, it's, it's much more grueling. Couldn't have said what, it better myself. What, what, and how, what did you think of the final shot when the guy walks out of the academy and it just freezes on Treat Williams' face? The guy says, I have it's, nothing to learn from you. Uh, I, I find that uh, it's a moment of it's a moment of perfect vengeance. You know, for it it would be it would be something different if he goes to the academy and it turns into Mr. Holland's opus or something yeah. at the end. <laughs> you know, and they're all, all you know slow slow clapping from because because he's a hero. Uh, but the next uh, the next line of schmucks is you know on their way up. That's great. It's Mr. Ho- Mr. Cello's opus, right? And it, I just how I love he, I love how Treat Williams has this totally blank expression. Like it's not like ah oh, or oh he got me or I should have done. Like he doesn't know what to think. But that's going to be the rest of his life. He thinks he's one successful book deal away though. 
He is. He is. And he was, and he did it too. Okay. Great talk. So thanks for listening. We hope you'll uh, subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, please uh, tweet to us at, at one five M I N film at 15 minute film on Twitter. We'd love to get your movie ideas. We're doing this season now on super long movies since we have the time. Thanks for listening. Take care. Hi, welcome back. To-